Welcome to Bonehead. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. I'm yeah. wearing shorts. You, well, at least it's not jorts. <laughs> what are jorts? Jean, jean shorts. shorts. Yeah, That's right. I, I, I was told by a young woman today, those are yucky. Why are you flipping me off? I'm sorry. I got bug. I am riddled with bug bites. I mow the yard, and you mow my yard. And both both my neighbors have paid for a mosquito service. Except you. Except Do you for think me. You would get the. Uh, <laughs> so but they're I, all just coming to your house. Yeah, they're all just flooding my house right now. Okay, so James is on his way. But what we've got here is an interview, and we're really, really excited about this because it is Brian Trenchard Smith. Yeah. Chad, would you like to talk about some of the things he did because oh, you weren't able to be there for the yeah, interview? Yeah, I was not able to be here for the interview. Sadly, I would have loved to been here but brian trenchard 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 smith trenchard smith we say it sorry brian we say it with a bit of the eastern kentucky he has directed two leprechauns movie probably the two best leprechaun movies leprechauns three and leprechauns four there's just one leprechaun i don't know why why are you making them plural i don't know (laughs) because warwick davis is more than one man yeah he has a story well he actually says nice things about warwick davis not to ruin the episode he directed a fantastic movie called turkey shoot he also directed one of my childhood classics, and I don't know if you guys remember it or not. It played on HBO quite a bit. It's called The Quest. Slash, it also is known by the name Frog Dreaming. And it starred Henry Thomas. We won't stop there. He's going to go through the industry. He's going to tell us many stories about many famous people, even working with the Trinity Broadcasting mm-hmm. Network. I'm sorry, I've got a cat over there screaming. We shouldn't. We also should note that uh, we, we, are, we decided to take a break we have two more parts for 90s cartoons. For those people who posted on Facebook, I know your cartoons have not been mentioned yet. We will discuss them. They will be. In the following, we have we did a we didn't mention this in the previous two parts because well we didn't know we were going to end up doing four parts on 90s cartoons. We had a lot to say. So those two parts will be coming in the upcoming weeks. But this interview was so amazing that we wanted to get it out right away. We wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. We're going to have a link to a uh, YouTube sizzle reel of some of the things that he's done. So check out this almost two-hour interview with a, with a what I consider an iconoclast. Yes. A director who has made over 40-some films. He has worked in television. He has been around the world. And it was a treat to talk to you. Thank you, Brian. Um, I don't know how much time you have this morning. Uh, we really wanted to talk about, well, really, we wanted to talk about your whole career, but we wanted to make sure that we, there's two things I usually ask, sir. Um, and this is James. I'm so sorry. Oh, My name's Daniel. Hi, James. <laughs> we have professional jobs. James is actually a uh, faculty's professor, and I'm director of middle management at higher education. <laughs> Good for you. Well, my wife is a PhD historian and uh, um, uh, worked for a number of years at Loyola Marymount. And, uh, um, but we decided to you know, uh, have a new adventure. And, uh, uh, and after 25 years in Los Angeles, listening to the dull roar of the traffic um, and all, all sorts of other things in LA, we decided to go full rural and uh, move to Oregon. And so here we are. Uh, so I'm, I'm very lucky I'm just uh, uh, to go from you know, the concrete canyons uh, to uh, a uh, to go to this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's very nice. So um, 
Well, we are actually both from Eastern Kentucky. I don't know how familiar you are with Kentucky, but uh, we we both grew up in the mountains, which is probably you can hear our accents as well, obviously. But we both grew up in the mountains, so that actually is more what we're accustomed to. We both live well. James lives in Mississippi now, but we both live in Lexington, which is more of a a small city, nothing compared to Los Angeles. However, I'm assuming that little piece of heaven was a lot cheaper than anything you had in Los Angeles. Yes, I can't even begin to put a price on what two and a half acres with 200 foot tall Douglas firs surrounding the house would cost in Bel Air. Uh, <laughs> Nor will you ever be able to put a price. No, no. And, uh, so, uh, yes, the leprechaun anyway. money is not going to pay for that, sir, and neither is no, higher education. No, I, I have been cheated out of it any money for leprechaun um but that's that's the uh the rolling the rolling break even i think is the uh, hollywood term that studio uh, math gets you every time yeah oh yes yes uh but luckily i managed to squirrel away enough uh to buy this place and uh, um and, and i can yeah I, there are projects that might get financed that would uh, cause me to um, yeah, just fly to wherever they're going to be made, but or uh, I, it's all you know, uh, up in the air at the moment. But you know, there are some interest. There is some interest in Alice as a uh, streaming service, yeah. streaming series rather. Uh, and um, there are a couple of other things I'm attached to, so we will see what happens. But in the meantime, I just um, I write uh, writing my memoirs at the moment. Uh, or revising the 348-page first draft, um, yeah. which is actually a, a fairly tortuous uh, exercise of, you know, defending your life. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty much the, the ultimate Rock dissertation. Uh, it is the ultimate dissertation. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so, well, what I'm trying to do is not make it a, uh, uh, you know, a hooray for me kind of autobiography, but to use my particular career path and the cult my cultural origins and how they you know affected my the kind of films that I wanted to make um, uh, and to provide future young people getting into the film business a bit of a historical record of what it was like in the now you know, the, the now sort of closed golden era of Hollywood, the last golden era. Now we're entering into the, you know, four or five dominant platform uh, corporatization of, uh, of entertainment era. Um, and uh, it's, you know, that, that's not going to be so, so easy for young people to come up with truly sort of, you know, groundbreaking films. Um, the blockbusters will get bigger and more photorealistic than ever. But, uh, you know, the kind of films that were made in the 70s, uh, uh, that and that, they, they couldn't get greenlit anymore. Well, uh, Hollywood only makes four films, right? They make the superhero film, the big budget science fiction film, the, um, what else, uh, the animated family film, mm -hmm. and then a, maybe a a micro budget Bloomhouse horror film from time to time that whether they they'll make money one way or the other, right? By hook or by crook. And if it hits big, then they make quite a bit. If it yeah. doesn't hit big, then they make just a little. What other movies yeah. does Hollywood make other than those four? 
well, that's it. You, you, it is down to formula. Um, yeah. And, uh, Four quadrants, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the formulas are safe. Formulas work. Yeah. It's business. Yeah. yeah I, I think Mike Myers said that as uh, some record executive uh, he, that he played in the uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody film. Right. Uh, and I like formulas. Formulas work. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was, Good. I'd like to see more of Mike Myers on the screen. His 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 roles are are sort of few and far between now, but he he has something. Um, As we get started, I wanted to uh, usually my like I said, this is James. I'm Joe. My name's Daniel Joseph Lewis, but everyone, all my friends call me Joe. Um, I do. We do quite a bit of moderating for cons, and I've met several different people, and we some we really appreciate you coming on the show but i usually only have one question what do you want to talk about and what don't you want to talk about but i have the feeling that you're willing to talk about most things after our first couple of minutes yes yes i i i, I hate a chat as they say yeah. uh, but uh, no i'm i'm quite happy to um right yeah, okay to which leads me to what I'll, something else I like to do just to get out of the way. And it's nothing about that. Before we delve into your career, I want to talk about your book. You have a book out right now and a little bit about your writing. So that I want to make sure that if people are listening and talking, that they know that they can go where they can go, what the book's about, and how they can uh, achieve and read it and give you some money. Shekels, as they to say. Yes, you don't you don't make any money really in self-publishing i hope to do better maybe with the memoirs because uh, uh maybe there'll be a different book format for that instead of you know a paperback size book maybe something more in the sort of widescreen format that has lots of photographic material scattered um, throughout it, uh, almost like one of those Cinefix or Starlog um, magazines. Yeah, absolutely. Were highly photographic, but still full of text. Um, yeah. And uh, and also the ebook version of uh, my memoirs would be able to incorporate uh, YouTube links, so that people could actually, if I you know riff on a particular film that. Uh, influenced me or that I really liked, um, they can go to the YouTube trailer on it or right. some, some documentary on it. So the ebook could be, you know, the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> um, because it, uh, you know, it, it, it allows you to disappear down countless rabbit holes, but I want to celebrate, um, you know, technology that people have forgotten that, you know, that we worked with in those days, you know, when you can actually touch the picture with your hand. Yeah, it was tangible, right? Exactly. A friend of ours who we've become quite close with on the show, his name's Mick Strawn. He was a production designer. I don't know if you know him or not. He worked on Nightmare on Elm Street 3, 4. He worked with Mick Garris on Critters too. Just numerous things, but he, he just, uh, he's, he's working on his memoir as well. And it's, he was talking about... Uh, you're right. I mean, it was tangible. And then there was a certain time in the eighties where the special effects guy was the God when he arrived on the set and now yep. it's all CGI. Yeah. So how would they get your book? Do, is it on your website? I'm sorry. No, I, I, well, uh, it, the book is, um, on Amazon and, uh, and Kindle. So okay. just go to go, you know, put the, yeah, put, yeah, Alice through the multiverse uh, into um, 
your search engine, uh, Amazon, uh, Alice Through the Multiverse, and the page will come up, and you can buy the paperback for the princely sum of, uh, of $12, and you can buy the Kindle for $3.49. I don't know how they come up with that price, but uh, <laughs> um, cheaper than a, than a cup of coffee. Uh, right. So, um, and hours more fun. Um, that would be uh, my description. So, uh, have we started yet? Or are yeah, we we've started. We've been fiddling with something, trying to get it to work, but it's okay. When I want to, uh, I have a really weird question. I wanted to start with you, how you got into it, because we want to talk about cutting trailers. Before I get to my weird question, I'm going to say I was listening to you were on the the movies that made us. We're huge yeah. Joe Dante fans, and uh, I was going to say, I hope this isn't too much community, th rural community theater uh, <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, no, this it, one isn't too much, because you made a comment about it, and my, uh, our other friend Chad, his daughter just got baptized, uh, his, his wife's Catholic, and uh, he couldn't make this, because this is when we could get it done, and we were both just laughing about it. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say something yeah. disparaging about podcasts? No, it was funny. We laughed, we laughed our ass off. I got to be yeah. honest with you. Well, because <laughs> we are rural community theater podcasting. So that's the reason we started laughing our ass off. But, you know, but, you know, I, I am very grateful that people in all sorts of, all walks of life actually get my particular sensibility uh, when they, once they've seen a, a number of my films and they sort of start to see a, a little bit of a common uh, thread between, uh, between them subtextually. Uh, and uh, I, I'll take praise uh, anywhere I can get it. Uh, but, uh, um, and I, I love fellow enthusiasts for movies. Um, movies you know, have been my life uh, and still are. Um, I um, probably will go see one today. I'm not quite sure what. I just saw Toy Story 4. How was it? Is not better than Toy Story 3. Someone said it was. Oh, some people say it's wonderful. But really, Toy Story 3, I thought, was the... That they really, you know, climaxed well uh, yeah, with that. I agree. And this is a, a pleasant reminder uh, and interesting to look at uh, toy, the Toy Story, you know, universe, let's say, uh, 10 years on. Uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I'm kind of glad to, to, uh, to see some of these characters come back and I'm certainly glad to see Bo Peep, you know, uh, uh, take such a dominant role. I mean, I think they thought, right, let's, let's Gene Splice Frozen with the new Toy, toy Story, uh, <laughs> and, uh, that'll get the, uh, the, the young Muppets or, uh, in, or Moppets rather. Uh, and, uh, uh so, uh, so I, I think it's 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 a well-intentioned you know, film that will no doubt rake in lots of cash. Um, but I was kind of expecting, um, I mean, along with the you know the pleasant you know throat-tugging sentiment every now and again, I was still expecting some really clever cliff, cliffhanger where the 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 fate of the uh, of the toys sort of hung by a thread which it seemed to me was the climax of uh toy story three it was a, agreed that whole it had all the adrenaline rush of a of, yeah. of a of a big movie climax this one sort of had a a climax that kind of went by the by the numbers um but you know uh that them's the breaks but uh, it, it certainly you know it it, it it will entertain its its intended audience I would say Toy Story 3, we, we actually, we've talked about this before, 
we heard adults sob in the theater. There was a grown man behind me when, and it wasn't as they're holding hands about to go over into, you know, and you think, oh my, of course they're not going to kill them, but you get sucked into it going, oh, they're going to kill them. They're about to, and it wasn't then. It's when he hands, Andy hands them over to the little girl. There was a grown man behind me just lost it. So I don't know what was going through his mind. I don't know what it touched, but it touched something. And it was actually kind of cool just to hear this grown man just start sobbing. And Toy Story 4 does not have that. I got to see it yesterday as well. And it does not have that moment where I'm like a grown man's going to sob. I don't, I don't yeah. think it has. No, that no it was, it was certainly sentiment light, uh, but uh, no, but, but good. Um, I, I want to see the Emma Thompson, Mindy Kaling uh, film. Uh, late night. Things about. Um, and, uh, most recently, the, the, a film that I, I just saw, uh, The Perfection on Netflix, okay. uh, which I really liked. Uh, I thought that is you know, not a bad uh, little horror movie. And uh, uh, I, yeah, I was quite, yeah, I, I was not as normal uh, ahead of the, in these kind of things, ahead of the story. Um, luckily, I had not seen the trailer. For an old trailer maker, now I just don't watch trailers. I, I really don't want to see them on anything that uh, could possibly have unpredictable elements because somehow they will give it away in the trailer. Uh, you know, I gave away a few things myself in a, a hundred odd trailers that I've made. Uh, but uh, uh, but I, now I, I don't, you know, want to, you know, I don't want to have these surprises spoiled for me. So uh, when the first major surprise occurred, I thought, whoa, uh, but I understand that surprise is given away in the trailer. So nobody watched the trailer for uh, yeah, The Perfection and, and, and you will, I think, have an interesting ride. Um, so. Let's talk about that. So I know some of your, your favorite movies, one in particular, Zulu. And once again, I don't want to get into areas that you've already covered with Joe and Joel and several other people. But I know that you started making trailers, which is close to what Joe Dante did. He, he started making trailers for Corman. How did you get there? How did you actually get that job? Well, um, I had arrived in Australia uh, just having turned 20. And somehow, um, with you know, a, a reference that I had forged on uh, British company letterhead, uh, um, saying that I was the greatest thing since sliced bread and uh, worked in editing and cameras, etc. I was somehow able to get a news film editor's job, which I quickly learned. I mean, I had made, you know, I'd done some 16 millimeter editing uh, of just a, you know, a short, you know, a, a short industrial film that uh, was, didn't have sound. I just uh, edited all these pieces together for someone of the, you know, the, the central electricity generating board. Um, and so I had some experience at least in, in, in handling 16 millimeter film. Um, and luckily the other, the new, the editors in the news bay um, thought, you know, I don't care if he has no experience, we'll teach him. And by the end of the first week, I certainly knew how to cut news. Um, and there's a whole, there was a whole art to it in those days. But uh, so after, you know, six months or so uh, cutting news and you know, occasionally going out and shooting news. Um, I noticed that the station promos at Channel 10 were kind of lackluster, I thought. And uh, so 
Australia was the kind of place uh, in those days where if you volunteered for something, if you wanted to have a go at something, and you were sufficiently enthusiastic, they would give you a shot. So they said, okay, well, you know, after the news shift ends at 6.30, why don't you do, you know, two hours of overtime uh, three times a week and make some, uh, some promos the way you think they should be made, uh, which meant that I had to, you know, go, go to the reels of the, of the programs from the library, select the pieces that I wanted transferred, paper them, send them into the lab, those pieces would come out, uh, and then I would edit them together and write a commentary, and um, I tended to choose things that reflected sex and violence a lot, um, and, and that seemed to work, uh, and so my promos were appreciated. Uh, and uh, so then uh, another network said, come and make promos for us, uh, so I duly did, and uh, it co coincided with the launch of the new, uh, the new season's product in February uh, 60, uh, February 16, what was it, goodness me, uh, 68, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, this was when Star Trek, the original Star Trek, uh, started, and mm. Ironside with Raymond Burr, and a whole bunch of hit shows that had longevity. So I did the launch promos for them in Australia, um, and the Channel 9 won the ratings in its first month as a result. The CEO yeah, invited me to stay on, but I said, um, I want to go around the world and improve my education in film. Uh, and he said, well, tell you what, why don't I give you a 16 millimeter print of your best promos? That because they were always compiled on two-inch videotape, and that doesn't travel through international you know, systems, let's say. But most people, in most film companies, etc., have a 16-millimeter projector. So he made a kinescope of, of you know, about seven or eight minutes of my, my promos and gave it to me. I duly left to tour Japan, learned about chroma key, and Australia was not in color in those days. Uh, and so I learned a bit about color ahead of the game. Came to America, uh, uh, unlimited Greyhound bus ticket for 99 days, $99. Um, <laughs> budget of $50 a week. And I circumnavigated America, then zigzagged across the middle. And wherever I, in major cities, I just sort of cold called TV stations and said, hey, I'm the promo director from Channel 9 Australia. You know, I got real of my stuff. You, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. Uh, and uh, um, in that way, I, I networked and, and, and learned things. I visited a trailer making company in New York, and they said, you should go, Kaleidoscope was its name, and uh, I think the legendary Don LaFontaine was involved with it. Um, I may even have met him. Uh, you know, he's the, the Thunderthroat uh, trailer narrator. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, you know, you, if you're going on the way to England, you should visit National Screen Service here while you're still in America. And so I did. I showed them my stuff. And they said, oh, we're actually looking for a, uh, a new writer-producer of trailers for our British arm. Um, so uh, they make 70% of the English language trailers uh, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, go see them, and they flagged ahead, and I showed my stuff to, you know, the 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 head trailer maker, the the legendary Esther Harris, 
whom I will write about, or I have written about in my memoirs. And, you know, one of the few women that broke the glass ceiling and rose to the top um, in those days. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I was taken on and I made trailers for Hammer Horrors. Uh, I made the, the sort of the, uh, the meat and potatoes trailers and the other two key trailer makers made the, uh, the important films. And sometimes I, was, I would do a draft on the important films and then they would step in and you know, change it, do, do more or whatever. Uh, so I ended up making about over 25 trailers for National Screen Service uh, at that time. Um, and then the Australians, uh, who, uh, for whom I had worked on Ch Channel 9, said, mm -hmm. please come back uh, and run the network promos. And I said, well, I'll do that if, if you allow me to make programs as well. And that was my fortuitous transition from the promo publicity side of the business to the production side. Uh, and uh, so they duly flew me back and gave me an office. And so I became a sort of uh, special project producer and uh, yeah, promo and uh, network promo director. So that is the, the long answer to a short question. No, uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> I, we, loved it. we loved it. We loved it. And trailer making has clearly, clearly influences my style, you know, yes. cut to the chase, cut to the chase, get on with it. Uh, what's next? Uh, so we were rewatching Turkey Shoot, and we were thinking, and actually, and our other friend Chad called him up and goes, yeah, he cuts the shit out. It just, <laughs> you, you cut to the chase, cut to the chase. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's still a certain, little bit of shit in there that I could have cut out. Uh, no, no. Uh, but... Uh, uh, that was a compliment. I hope you know it was. No, it, no, no. I understand that. Look, was, I, you know, look. I, there's good shit and bad shit, but I like to think that I delivered a lot of good shit. You like delivered that. fantastic good shit. In fact, <laughs> go ahead. I was gonna say turkey shoot. Uh, I was watching it, and I was just thinking that I'm, I'm a big fan of Logan's Run and some of those movies, and I'm like that. That deserves to be mentioned in, in kind of that thing because it's dystopia and and all the horrible things. And I was watching it going, this is, uh, and I know it was, uh, there was a remake that you were an executive producer on, I believe. Yeah, I had absolutely it. nothing to do with it. Uh, and it, it kind of pains me. Uh, yeah, it, look, it, 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 it had to be made extremely cheaply. I wish they had come to me and said, you made the original. Uh, you know, uh, we only have money for 15 days of shooting. Yeah. Um, come up with something that, you know, it could at least equal it, um, uh, but they didn't. They they went to uh, someone else, and uh, it's it just doesn't it it, it doesn't sort of uh, build upon the original in in my view. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't want to disparage it. It's it's all it's been sold all over the world. It's it's you know recouped. I've, I don't know whether it's recouped its cost or not, but. Uh, um, there was a certain amount of soft money involved, obviously with some state subsidies, um, but it it didn't do it for me, and and I was not a big fan of Dominic Purcell uh, as as a, a, a hero you could identify with. I mean, yeah, some people didn't like Steve Railsback, but to me, he was the perfect kind of quirky rebel. Uh, go on. No, I, I didn't want to interrupt you. It just leads me to a question on here, and I was going back and forth on whether to ask it or not, but I think I will because I think you have a good sense of humor about this. Just how batshit crazy is Steve Railsback? I've met 
I met a lot of people. I've never had the opportunity to meet Steve or Mr. Railsback, as I should say. Please tell me he's just as crazy as I hope he will be or hope he is. Well, I think he's crazy in a nice way. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, Not in a yeah. Klaus Kinski kind of way. Yeah, yeah. He, he clearly has issues that have arisen in his life uh, and have had an effect on him. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found that if you're straight with Steve and, and you treat him with respect, um, because you know he, he, he's, he's capable of being a really great actor in the right role. Uh, and, uh, but if you, you know, if, if you treat him that way, then you know, he's, you know, he's a pussycat really. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, he understood what I was up against and he wanted to help as much as possible. And you right. know, he has you know, publicly disparaged the producers, as you know, um, and suggested that they lost all the money at the racetrack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is an interesting theory, but not really. Uh, I don't think that accounts for our budget shortfall that I had to deal with. Um, and, um, but I'm, I'm pleased that, that Turkey Shoot resonates with uh, an audience, you know, several generations later. Um, uh, you know, we wanted it to have, you know, a, you know, a biting political message uh, buried in, you know, trashy exploitation or the various other, you know, right. epithets that have been attached to it. Uh, and it, 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 so obviously Ronald Reagan, as he was uh, known in the various, uh, you know, uh, political posters painted on walls, etc. Obviously he was, his supply side economics and, uh, Margaret Thatcher's similarly, they, they were targets of the film. And now we live in the era of Trump and, and his, you know, band of, oh, bad shit. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, so it, it, the fact is the, you know, in an authoritarian society, the ruling elite, uh, and maybe, you know, you know, and celebrities can probably do just what they want and get away with murder uh, if you know uh, if the iron hand of uh, of the government you know protects them yeah. so um, i think that's uh, I, I think turkey shoot is one that will continue to be will continue to resonate because i was watching it and i was like i can hear people that i know and know of say things like you know obedience is freedom and 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 some of the messages that are that are the the uh, taglines and the oaths and things in that film and so I was watching it and I was like I need to even talk to my students about this I'm teaching a class about pop culture and education and how you know what we see in movies does reflect what we hear beyond and so as hmm. I, as I was watching it I was like there is a lot of uh, indoctrination that we do yeah. see in reality, education repeats culture. Mm -hmm. And, and right. so I was watching it going, yeah, I need to bring this up to my students because I think that's one of the big concerns we do see, of you know, like you said, that iron hand, if that iron hand is never, you know, corrected, then it's mm. just going to continue. Yeah. No, but, uh, we are lurching, you know, step by step uh, towards basically a, um, a, a, an authoritarian fascist government with um, 
you know, a fig leaf of uh, democracy um, pinned upon it. Uh, and there is no more important election in American history than the one that will take place next year. And so I, I'm sure you tell your students uh, that as the moment they are eligible to vote at 18, they must do it because it's their future um, that you know, is at stake. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, uh, I mean, I, I am a somewhat anti-authoritarian person, even though I went to elite private schools uh, and, you know, was born into a privileged lifestyle, not rich, but, you know, nice upper middle class lifestyle. And by great good fortune, despite choosing a, a career that normally has a sort of 90% failure rate, um, I was able to, you know, earn a, a reasonable living and, uh, uh, and practice, you know, my, my craft and, and, uh, experience my, you know, the love of movies, uh, for the last, you know, 50 plus years. Um, so I, I was very lucky. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I am concerned about the future for my grown sons. Uh, what, what, how will their life be? And what will America be like in uh, when they are my age? Uh, so, um, but you know, all you can do is make your opinion well, make your 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 wish felt at the at each succeeding election. Uh, I guess the half-term election was a good sign, but I don't know. He is um, he he and his gang are tricky customers um, and. Uh, I, there's no telling what they may get up to, to make sure that uh, they get a second term. Um, so we will see. But I, I have made films that obviously reflect a slightly anti-authoritarian bent, Turkey Shoot being one of them, Dead End Drive-In being another. Mm. Um, are you familiar with Dead End Drive-In? I think that's a very valuable film to show to students. Uh, I haven't when, seen all of while it. Turkey Shoot. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Say again? I hadn't seen yeah, all while, of it, while and I'd had some questions about it. I was going to ask you when we got to it, yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's good. I mean, Turkey Shoot is obviously um, reveling in its B-movie tropes, but it also has this, you know, undercurrent uh, of, you know, resentful, uh, you know, attitude to, um, you know, an authoritarian government. And mm -hmm. look, you know... Uh, uh, I mean, and, and ours is, you know, it, it, there are authoritarian governments all over the world. And look what's happening in China to the Uyghurs mm -hmm. uh, who are being re-educated uh, uh, in, in, in large camps. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, naturally, we don't want to rock the, you know, rock the boat with, uh, uh, with China and the... Money. A, the <laughs> Money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, of course. It's all... So ultimately, human rights will always take second place to profit. Uh, and un unfortunately, that is the way of the world because self-interest is the next strongest instinct after self-preservation. And, you know, um, I'm beginning to sound like a sort of uh, original sin Calvinist, uh, but, uh, no, you know, I think there's... Everything you're saying is absolutely yeah. correct, and we agree with you probably at least 95, if not 100%. Um, it, when it comes to dead end driving, but I, I was actually not going to go as politically as, as you went with it, but 
I want, I was kind of curious about your experiences with drive-ins and how that shaped you making the movie because that's, you know, that's dead. Uh, there is actually a functioning drive-in in Kentucky. Uh, I have a two-year-old. Well, he'll be two next month and I'm trying to pick the time that'll probably be his first movie as a drive-in simply because I can manage him there in a car and I'll, you know, instead of a movie theater. And I just kind of wanted to teach your experience with what drive-ins did that influence your movie? your experience with drive-ins? Yeah. Well, my experience was very limited because I grew up in England and there right. were no drive-ins in England. Yeah, rain, bloody rain all the time, you know. Right. Uh, so, um, so cinema was always a, an indoor experience. For well, me. I thought I'd so read I came to about you going to drive-ins in Australia, but... Okay. I did. I, I did initially because I, um, I, I, I went uh, at a time when um, they, you know... Uh, you know, they were, you know, coining you know, money for uh, exhibitors there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember the first film I saw, uh, my father had preceded me to Australia at that time. Uh, I, I, I saw uh, Major Dundee, mm -hmm. well, that was the very first uh, uh, film I saw in a drive-in. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I had to say Peck and Paul over to him. Yes, Just so you know that we're not dumbasses, keep going. <laughs> I know you're not dumbasses, otherwise you wouldn't be interested in this kind of material. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, so, but, but, uh, trust me, I, I, you know, I appreciate you very much uh, and, and, and the level upon which you're operating. Oh, we're getting to a Marty Feldman question before you know it, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Ah, uh, poor Marty. Uh, but... Um, yeah, so that was, so I did go to drive-ins occasionally, but being someone who'd been, who was accustomed to seeing movies in a completely darkened auditorium with good sound, um, the drive-in never quite lived up to the, the, the special technical standards that right. would allow me to be sucked into the universe that the film was, uh, was offering. Uh, so and you, you get distracted and then somebody walks past your windscreen or as we, you know, as we showed in Dead End Drive-In, there's a panel wagon you know, uh, that's suddenly rocking from side to side and uh, uh, pleasant noises are issuing from it. Um, and it kind of distracts you from uh, what's going on on the screen. Uh, so, uh, but, I, you know, but it was an institution, an, an American institution that transferred very well to, to Australia. Um, so... Uh, that was really my experience of it, uh, but uh, it, uh, it, it was, of course, the perfect you know, uh, metaphor for society. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's how Dead End Drive-In sort of came about in the waning days of the drive-ins when right. you know, VHS had come in and suddenly, you know, I mean, you could never sort of watch a movie at home before. Uh, you could see it on television, interrupted by commercial breaks, censored, whatever. But you could never have a movie that you could, you know, play, stop, rewind, um, play a number of times. So suddenly the kind of product that uh, people went to the drive-ins to see or to be playing on the screen while they engaged in other activities, um, uh, suddenly that product was kind of available to them at home. And drive-in business, you know, fell away rapidly. And then finally, people who owned the real estate thought, you know, well, 
what am I getting every month out of this piece of real estate when the developer is offering me squillions of dollars to put up six blocks of flats on it? Yeah. Um, so we got the Matraville drive-in where I saw my very first drive-in movie. Mm. Um, it, after it had closed down and before it was to be torn up and demolished. Um, and we were able to, uh, you know, yeah, you know, do what, and it had working projectors. Uh, and yeah, you know, one of the things I wanted to show was a real change, uh, as, as they were done in, in those days. Um, our hero is sort of trying to follow the police who've taken the tires off his car. Mm -hmm. And he, we have a tracking shot where he goes, uh, you know, past the projection box. And I arrange that so that the, the light from one projector cuts off just as the light from the other projector uh, you know, comes out. So, um, f you know, for those that, that, n that know, you know, or, uh, how the technology worked in those days, that was a little example. Uh, but, uh, uh, anyway, so I wanted to, you know, obviously celebrate drive-in culture and then take it to the kind of ludicrous extremes that we, we were able to do, um, you know, where people had, you know, bricks of dope and, uh, pet monkeys and, and there was a, you know, a, a, a combi van that was turned upside down and, uh, and turned into a swimming pool. And was, they, they referred to that car as Club Med. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, anyway, it was, it was good to, to, to celebrate drive-in conditions and, uh, and also um, certain, you know, social types and, uh, and, and you know, uh, you know a, a wide variety of, uh, of little comments. Now the film was not appreciated in Australia. It was, you know, the distributor hated it, uh, didn't, you know, didn't like it at all. The Australian censor wanted to give it an R rating for, for you know, preventing under 18s from seeing it because it was a, a bad social example, but we were able to appeal and got it through for an M rating, which meant that, you know, anyone could see it. Um, uh, so it was, critics dismissed it as, you know, dumb, stupid, it was socially critical of its target audience and people didn't kind of, kind of like that. Uh, you know, we, we, we make, you know, we clearly point to junk values that society and, and that young people are hooked on. Uh, uh, and, uh, it took American critics to discover it. Michael Wilmington of the LA times wrote a glowing review. The Hollywood reporter was a glowing review. Um, and it, it developed its following thereafter, but it was in America, after a token one week theatrical release with a few hundred prints, it was its real destination was going to be VHS, the very thing that had replaced the drive-ins. Talking about that transition and, and, you know, expanding it forward now, you actually just made me think my children have no concept of things not being on demand. I have two children, seven and nine. And, you know, I, it's funny because I, I, I joke that I've officially hit, you know, I'm entering my late middle ages because I have to say things like we used to watch commercials. Like that was when you went to make a sandwich. That was when you went, you know, and, and my children literally have no concept of that. And so, you know, as somebody who makes films and as somebody who does that is what's the challenge that you foresee going forward? where everything is available on demand, but there are so many formats is, you know, my kids know Amazon prime and Hulu and Netflix. And, you know, when I'm like, we can go see a movie in a 
theater and have that experience because I think there is something that experience and my kids are like but we can it's available right there we don't have to leave the house anymore yeah no that that's that is the way I mean the the VHS convenience has now been transferred to the the streaming service uh, and you know that's uh, that in a way is is contributing to the potential death of cinema. Um, I think the collective experience of watching a movie with a couple of hundred people or even 50 people, uh, that, that is a, uh, that's gives you something special that you don't get necessarily from turning on your, yeah, maybe 55 inch screen. Uh, and, um, you know, just uh, being able to watch the movie and pause it when you wanted to. Um, that there's something about being in a theater where the movie will run and it's not going to stop for you or your bladder. So, uh, you know, you, so be prepared. Well, of course, unfortunately, people will, you know, walk past you <laughs> to get more popcorn or to go to the bathroom. Uh, but generally, you know, it, it, it is a, a time-sensitive uh, experience. Uh, but by the same token, I think uh, some homes, you know, assuming, you know, there will be people who can afford such things in the automated future, um, <laughs> where there are no jobs. Um, uh, some homes will have bigger screens. They'll have 70 inch screens in a dedicated room in the house yeah. with maybe up to 10 chairs uh, that, or sofas, et cetera, that can be arranged. And then people can go into that room and have a cinema experience. Uh, yeah, although they could also pause the film, which they can't uh, at the local uh, movie house. But so th there will be, I, I think uh, that there will still be that opportunity to experience cinema in your own home, sort of, but to actually, you know, to go back to my childhood, to go to the, you know, the Leicester Square Theatre or the Empire Theatre, both of which were in Leicester Square, um, and sit down and then the curtains part and, you know, this giant wraparound screen is there and, you know, the, well, there's been an overture, then the curtains part, and then there's this, you know, this huge screen and up comes, you know, Ben-Hur or Spartacus or Elsid or the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, I did see the three screen, How the West Was Won when it opened at the... Oh, London. really? Yeah, did see that. And sure, you, you kind of, uh, you could see the joins between uh -huh. you know, where the, um, the screens overlapped. Uh, somewhere on, on Trailers from Hell, I've done a couple of pieces on Cinerama uh, movies. I don't know whether you've seen those. I've uh, seen every single but, one of your Trailers from Hell, actually. My God, you're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> um, well, I'm a glutton in many things. You are right <laughs> behind chocolate and cheeseburgers <laughs> and <laughs> fried chicken. Oh, wow. I don't love you. Can we call you Brian? I hope you don't mind, Brian. They call me Brian. Uh, so. Yeah, I, uh, uh, we're very respectful, but you are... You, you're just not chocolate or cheeseburger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand. Oh I understand. I, I think of myself actually as a sort of uh, um, a good chicken curry, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, that would be, yeah, I'd like that yeah. too. Come with, to think about it, you, you know, just moved with, yourself yeah. down another notch. <laughs> <laughs> if we had some yeah. non bread with that, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, but uh, uh, well, I'm I'm sorry, I forgot what you were actually. No, well, you know that's okay. You were talking about big screens and how the West oh, yeah. won. Well, it, I mean, and sure, you can go and see a superhero movie now on a big screen in IMAX and IMAX 3D. Um, and yeah, that's that is a, a, a yeah that's a good experience. Um, but you know the yeah you know, for smaller dramatic films, uh, you know your attention at, in the home is always going to be slightly diffused uh, than uh, in an, in a hall uh, with you know a lot of other people there for exactly the same purpose. Um, Absolutely, it's a shared experience. Yeah, yeah, and that's important. But look, I mean. Times change. I mean, uh, I, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I, you have to adapt to um, the future. The future marches on, and uh, it's uh, uh, so. Uh, I just don't want to get into a black mirror stage where you know I've got my eyeballs have been replaced by computers uh, that give me excellent vision and process things, and yeah, heads-up displays give me further info and. Um, but you, you know, also remember every horrible thing someone ever did to you. Yes, yes, and you know the government can hack your eyeballs and turn you into you know an obedient little consumer. Yeah. So you know, of course, without jobs, uh, what? How will we pay for what we want to consume? I don't know. <laughs> you were talking about entertainment, and I always think it's and I'm it's a cliche now, but it's true. It's, it's never technology wise. It's never been easier to make a movie. It's also never been harder to make money at it. Yeah. Well, the rolling break even, and uh, we're bigger than you, so shut up. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, it's certainly the, you know the, the the rule of the day. I mean, it, it, isn't this the sort of the philosophy of the the gig economy? that people only get paid for results. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't get pension contributions. They shouldn't have their health paid for by companies. Companies are there to make profits yeah. and are drains on profits. Uh, so, you know, I, yeah, I mean, you look like you're about to make a comment. So. Well, that, that, that was one of the things that uh, you made me think about this. We, several years ago, uh, and he's now passed away, but we saw Harlan Ellison, and, and one of the things Harlan Ellison talked about was, you know, there's no, there's no pension for aging writers. There's no, there's no, you know, if you're creative, you just aren't allowed to stop. Yeah. And, and so, that's a problem. Once upon a time, people uh, shared in the revenue stream of their creative work, uh, albeit fractionally. I mean, when you look at how the system broke down, I mean, the theater would take 50% of the receipts. Mm -hmm. They'd also make money on the popcorn and whatever, and that was all theirs. But they'd, they'd take 50% of the receipts and remit the remaining 50% to the distributor. Um, once upon a time, they were all, all, all owned by the same company, but you know, antitrust suits changed that. Uh, now the relationships are not official. Uh, but um, so the distributor then... Uh, takes 35% of that 50% that was remitted um, as a distribution commission, then takes the uh, publicity and the prints and publicity, used to be a lot in the film days, but yeah. uh, uh, takes the, the cost of prints and publicity off the balance um, 
there, and unless the film has made a great deal of money, um, uh, nothing comes out, nothing, no profit comes out of the theatrical release because of the cost of, uh, of, of launching it. So it's now left to the ancillary markets, which can comprise 75% of what the movie ultimately earns to recoup uh, you know, the budget of the film, which means that so many films are, you know, never recoup. Uh, and I, uh, I think I was reading an article, Joe Dante sent me something uh, about um, the writer, one of the writers of uh, Men in Black 3. Now, they've just made Men in Black 4, which has fizzled, uh, but Men in Black 3, which, you know, along with the rest of the, the franchise up to then made a huge amount of money, still in the red. That's... But despite the fact it was threes in the red, they went and made a number four. So why? If they were not I, gonna... uh, I've heard a similar comment from actually one of the people who worked on Men in Black 1, the first one, which obviously launched the rest of them. And, and uh, uh, he did some writing work, I believe, and his name is escaping me. But he, he said that uh, somebody posted about, you know, do you get something because four got made? And he responded eloquently like, well, according to what the math that I've been given, one is still needing to make more money before I get paid residuals. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, video I, math. I, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I think Ridley Scott uh, said or oh, quite some years ago, may have changed in that sense, but uh, although um, uh, Alien, which cost $10 million, right. brought in over $100 million, uh, he, yeah, he was still in the red and seemed perpetually to be in the red. Uh, so, I don't know, it's, uh, I, I think, you know, corporations, you know, uh, uh, simply want to get uh, the relationship between, you know, management and labor to boil down to a simple thing that uh, you just get paid for services rendered. Uh, and we determine really how much you should be paid for those services. We think you're being paid far too much. Uh, and, uh, so if they can just get everyone down to a flat fee, um, that's what, and, you know, that's simpler. I mean, I, I would have to say that I was told that it costs a company $15 to issue a check, uh, that when you amortize the, the cost of the accounts department and time, and, you know, I'm sure there's some formula for it. So when you get a residual check of uh, $3 and 20 cents for something, yeah, that's that's a loss for the company um, to have to honor that particular agreement. Now, I'm sure that's not the only reason that they would like to abolish these agreements. But unions all over you know, the world are under attack. Uh, and guilds like the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild, you know, are similarly surrounded by hostile forces uh, who would like to see them eliminated and that everyone be, you know, good little widgets and take what you're given and be lucky you're employed. What's the name of the famous bar in Hollywood or is it, it's in Los Angeles where if it's less than a dollar, you get a free drink, your residual check. <laughs> I it? had not heard of that. Oh, it exists. I promise. I'm so sorry. I didn't know that the conversation was going to go here. Otherwise I would have already looked it up and gave it. Well, that's fine. fine. That's yeah, I, say, I will email it to you. I will Google it and email it to you. I was so say, you can take your check there the next time you're in town. <laughs> oh, hey, well, I don't think I've ever received one less than a dollar. 
Less but, than a dollar, you're supposed to be able to get a free drink I think there. Clancy Brown, the actor, posted on Twitter recently because, you know, people make the assumption, oh, you're, you're in Hollywood, so you're making money. And oh, yeah. he posted a, a great shot of finally got my residual, and it was for some movie he had done some time ago, but it was three cents. Yeah. And so he, posted, he goes, living the high life, don't know what I'm going to do with all this money. And it was just hilarious to, you know, to, to have that reality check yeah. of. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I, I, I'm at 5% of the profits of, uh, uh, of Leprechaun in space, but I got a notice or many years ago now saying that you, your residual, your profit participation is it, it, clearly unlikely ever to happen. So we're just going to suspend sending you reports now. <laughs> So, not to not to keep this too, uh, but that's kind of a huge fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that's that's and five percent is not insignificant. It's not like it's point zero five. Yes. Yeah. No. Talk about controlling the flow of information. Speaking of authoritarian, controlling the, the flow. Of Trimark now is Trimark right? Those were made by. Uh, yeah, but then they were absorbed by Lionsgate. Was it Lionsgate? Okay, I, I, off the top yeah. of my head, I didn't know. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, so yeah there you go uh, all right so we we've spent some time talking about politics and and unions which is not where i was going with this but it's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much well my, your my best farty uh, marty farty marty feldman story so how did you meet him and we have to ask simply because we're huge fans we don't mean to ask about someone else during your interview but we have to have a marty Feldman. that's all right I, i'm i'm not so self-absorbed that i can't actually talk about other people we appreciate um, it it's a strain admittedly but i can manage uh, <laughs> um well i worked on the trailer of marty feldman's first british film every home should have one uh, and indeed every home should have a marty uh, very entertaining. Uh, and, um, but I never met him at that point. He came to Australia to do a series of sort of one man shows in various cities. Uh, and my particular network, uh, was very good at just grabbing a star before they left or making the arrangement, obviously in advance. Um, so come and do a, a, an Australia-only uh, broadcast uh, uh, of your material, let's say. And uh, uh, sometimes there were singers and uh, actors and whatever. Uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make a little TV special around you only for Australia, and we'll pay you with uh, around-the-world first-class airfare or two. Uh, no, no tax issues. Uh, and... Uh, um, uh, the, yeah, so the, a lot of actors, you know, who came to Australia, who had, you know, who were able to turn their talents to something else, uh, did so. I mean, I had both Darren McGavin and Robert Lansing, um, host TV specials, um, that I made about movies all over the world, upcoming movies, etc. Um, and, and it's just a matter of going to their hotel room uh, and uh, putting them up against a, a pleasant background and with cue cards, um, giving them, uh, you know, the little links between movies mm -hmm. and occasionally, you know, talking off the cuff and then cutting that into the show. So with Marty, um, 
what he wanted to do was something for animal rights. Uh, so he basically did a half hour special called Let's Talk to the Animals, which also, you know, which incorporated that Dr. Doolittle song. Mm -hmm. uh, so we took him to Taronga Park Zoo and shot him uh, all over the zoo, miming to his recording of the Dr. Doolittle song. Mm -hmm. And we recorded various uh, sketches that were animal related, um, which he had performed before in, um, in, in England. Uh, but like the, um, the restaurant, the, the, you know, the, the sort of strange little man in the restaurant that starts harassing someone at another table uh, for about what he is eating. You know, the man's eating, you know, vegetarian food, but uh, Marty would say, have you heard, you know, the shriek of a carrot as it is plucked from the ground by its roots? Um, have you heard the death rattle of a stick of celery? Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so stuff like that. That was one of the sketches. But uh, the Taronga Park Zoo was kind of funny because we went to the rhino enclosure uh, and uh, Marty had just decided to take off his, his, the cloth cap that he uh, was part of his sort of trademark personality uh, on, on TV. And he hung it on the rhino's horn at, as they met across the barred, you know, gate. Um, and uh, the rhino just walked off with it. And that was Marty's precious cap. And so Marty started climbing the fence to get over into the rhino and get his cap back. And no, no, Marty, no, just stop, stop. And luckily we had a, you know, one of the, the sort of animal you know, keepers there. Um, who, and we restrained him and then the animal guy went in and, obviously yeah had a relationship with the rhino and uh, got the cap back uh, but, uh, but you know when marty you know had put his mind to something he was he was going to do it he was going to get in there and just go up to the rhino and probably he thought wow that'll make a great piece of film um, it would have we yeah uh, i i think the, our camera guy was so you know nonplussed by you know marty climbing up onto the top of this gate to get over uh, that I think he stopped shooting uh, and uh, as we were all yelling and screaming. Um, but that was my Marty Feldman story. But, uh, um, and you know, I, I got a, uh, there's a picture of me with an appalling beard, which I had at that time, trying to pretend that I was older than I was, um, uh, you know, directing Marty on uh, something. It's somewhere, it'll appear eventually in the, in the, in the memoirs. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, that was, yeah, uh, it was fun. Uh, you know, television, making television in Australia in the early 70s was, uh, you know, it's quite an experience. And yeah. uh, a unique place. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have been there at the right time. You made a lot of unique movies and you did a lot of outrageous things. Some of them would be great stories on any documentary. Did you have to set yourself on fire to prove to Lazenby, is this true that it could be done and he wouldn't get hurt for dragonflies? Yes, I did. Um, I've set myself I on feel fire. Like that's, that's, I mean, don't get me wrong. You have balls of steel, sir, because <laughs> I've directed some short films and as much as I've, yeah, I just don't know that I'm going to start setting myself on fire anytime soon just to prove it, but keep going. <laughs> well, I only did that because I had complete faith in the technology that would pr protect me. Right. Uh, and uh, 
the Australian invention of water gel, which uh, was a, uh, a fire retardant jelly that involved tea tree oil, amongst other things, um, and it was marketed for uh, fire safety purposes in a bucket, uh, you know, soaked with the stuff. So if you had an electrical fire, you could pull out this blanket and uh, throw it over the blazing electrical outlet device motor or whatever it was that was on fire and contact between flame and the water gel would instantly put out the flame. Um, so one of the stunt guys that I knew said, well, we could use this to do human torches without a fire suit. Normally you wore you know, a, a protective suit with the costume of the actor you were doubling and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, something to completely encase your head and uh, mm -hmm. uh, or certainly a face mask. Um, and then you'd be filmed so that this would not be, you know, so obvious. So that was the old way, but, you know, gelling your entire body uh, or wearing basically gel soaked long johns, mm -hmm. uh, then putting cotton, uh, overalls over that to act as a barrier between the gel and the costume on that you would then put on top that would be actually fueled and put set on fire. That had to be done quickly because the gel would soak through and, uh, and nullify the, uh, the flames. If you didn't, you know, go from, you know, when the countdown had started, you really had to stick to that countdown. You had about a minute, uh, uh, right. to, to keep going once you uh, so um, I you know uh, my first film the stunt men mm -hmm. have you seen the stunt men okay well you see me set by up to my naked arm in that uh, yeah. to prove that the gel worked I thought I could hold it for no I bloody well can't I stuck it back in the bucket uh, but I was I, I I did it again so they could get a longer shot um, uh, so it, 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 if it's used correctly, it, it worked. And Grant Page, you know, pioneered the use of it. Uh, and so he, he, on certain occasions as publicity stunts, uh, that came later, but uh, I, I, I did some fire stunts. But the, I, I had done one just to test it uh, in Australia uh, beyond just putting you know, my, my arm on fire. Uh, so I, you know, said to George, you know, this is perfectly safe, uh, and, uh, and I'll show you. So mm -hmm. I, behind the scenery in the Golden Harbor studio, I got out of my clothes into the long woolen long johns and, uh, um, the protective barrier and then a, a costume jacket taken from the, uh, that could be destroyed from their costume department and was duly set alight in front of George. And it wasn't, you know, a particularly big one. Um, it was really from the uh, top of the buttocks to the shoulder blades. Um, and that was really what we needed for his jacket to be on fire. Right. Uh, so, you know, I should not have done that. Uh, I, I, when you have a macho guy, former James Bond, yeah. uh, you know, you, you say, well, I can do it. And, you know, I'm just this young, you know, you know, you know movie you know, director, you know, I didn't, don't look like I've lived an athletic life. And uh, anyway, he, he accepted it. Uh, and then 
we did the stunt, and of course he did actually get burned, um, about a three-inch burn on his, his wrist mm. here, uh, when he had trouble getting the jacket off. And the miscalculation, uh, which, from which I learned you know, a good lesson, uh, in terms of really, you know, really doing your research to, to see what could possibly go wrong. The miscalculation was that the combined bulk of the water gel soaked long johns and the protective barrier made it harder to get the jacket off when he, uh, at the, after he'd done all the fight movements perfectly. Um, and so, you know, uh, and, and, he naturally at that point had forgotten the the initial that the instruction was the moment that you feel you're getting burned or something's wrong hit the ground we'll throw the blanket over you so we actually grant actually tackled him and brought him to the ground and we threw the blanket over him um and you know uh he he wasn't happy about it uh, <laughs> well, of course not. Uh, yeah but he didn't hit me as, as has been said uh, he didn't. Uh, I, he thought about it, uh, uh, and yeah, he certainly stepped in my direction, and I just stood there and I said, "Okay, George, you know, you want to hit me, you can," but he didn't, to his, to his credit, and um, it healed. Uh, and there's, I think, you know, barely a mark there. And so, three years later, he invited me onto his yacht at Long Beach. Uh, I mean, we had a perfectly good relationship afterwards. I mean, three days later, he came back, finished the scene. Mm -hmm. I, I doubled him with Grant getting the jacket off and throwing it at Wong Yu. Yeah. So he didn't have to do anything more with fire. Um, and uh, so I, I was forgiven and, and he had the perfect opportunity to feed me to the sharks uh, when we sailed to uh, you know, uh, uh, off Long Beach, but which he, would have been a very Bond thing to do. <laughs> yes, yes, he was changing sides and uh, uh, and and you know, becoming Blofeld. But uh, yes, absolutely, uh, uh, interesting idea for a new Bond movie, Bond as the villain. Well, that was part of what uh, I thought was good casting chemistry for Man from, the Man from Hong Kong, because uh -huh. uh, the bad guy is is uh, uh, you know played by a James Bond. Uh, mm -hmm. And we obviously went, tried to give a Bondish flavor to yeah. his, you know, luxury penthouse and, uh, um, and obviously, you know, some of the music score as well. And that's the first co-production between Australia and Hong Kong, correct? Uh, yes, between Australia and, a, and an Asian film company. Uh, okay. First. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm really attached to another one, but I don't know as yet whether they will achieve the necessary finance it's much you know harder obviously when you're dealing with a government instrumentality uh, mm -hmm. than when you're dealing with you know a, 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 Hong, a private hong kong film company right <clears throat> before we go on to uh, grant page because i wanted to ask you maybe one of your best stories there i you were telling me that and i was watching an interview with William Friedkin talking about certain things that he wouldn't do again. Now that he's an older man, he, as a director, he wouldn't ask someone to do again. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious now that you're in your forties, uh, what would you not do again that you would have done as a, a tenacious, full of piss and vinegar, 20 year old director, you know, I'm going to get it on film. I've got to get that shot and damn it. It's going to happen. 
by God? What would you well, not do again? What was the scariest thing that you did that you wouldn't ask someone to do again? Well, you know, um, my early work is full of stunts. Yes, that, absolutely. Um, that yeah, basically didn't go wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were... Um, I don't, you know, I... Maybe I've lost a certain amount of the piss and vinegar that I had in my 20s. And uh, uh, I now have to be absolutely 100% convinced right. that what is about to happen is not going to hurt uh, anybody. Um, you know, I suppose cuts and bruises, minor yeah. cuts and bruises are uh, acceptable. Uh, but... but yeah, avoid uh, should be avoided at all costs. Uh, no one should be maimed uh, or killed uh, for going to work, and that's you know stunt work is a job. Um, but you know, uh, I think it represents a, 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 a some maturity uh, that I eventually acquired. Uh, in the course of you know a lot of experience, uh, and you know nobody died, nobody was crippled, nobody you know suffered you know anything you know worse than you know uh, a broken ankle and uh, having dirt blown into uh, their an eye mm -hmm. that the eye surgeon then uh, removed carefully with tweezers. Mm -hmm. uh, in the films that I directed, um, that was, you know, uh, that, that was the worst. And, and, and obviously the George getting burned uh, on a little portion of his wrist. Those were the, uh, the worst things that happened. But I think, you know, we, we were lucky a few times. Yeah, it's a tough question to look back and kind of think about what would you do or what wouldn't you do or what could have went wrong. And I knew that the, to my knowledge and doing research that there wasn't any big story. It was just more of a curiosity going, you know, there was this one scene and I swear to God, if I could smack, you know, smack myself and say, what were you doing? You could have got he or she killed. Does that make sense to you? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, I talk about some of these incidents in my, in, in my memoirs and I had faith in the persons concerned who were doing the stunt. Hmm. Uh, it, it, and, you know, maybe a more prudent person would have said, no, I, I, I really, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I, I think there's still a, a possibility uh, of something going wrong um, that I can't put my finger on uh, or that nobody else can put their finger on. There's still that possibility. I mean, look, you're doing a, a car chase and you think you're, uh, the car is perfectly maintained uh, and suddenly, you know, the, for some reason in the car chase, the brakes fail. Right. No one could predict that. Uh, right. uh, some, you know, some freak, you know, freak event. And so that didn't happen, uh, but it could happen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so there are, there are quite a few instances of that. So, Certainly, I don't want to do any sort of gonzo stunt work anymore. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think, you know, those days uh, were very, very rapidly over. Once the, once the, the, the 70s came to 
a conclusion and the Australian film industry had reached a level of maturity uh, and professionalism, um, then you know, that the, the necessary safeguards, I think, were in place. Uh, I mean, look, the, the Mad Max pictures were extremely dangerous. I mean, the, the trick is to make it look dangerous, not to make it be dangerous. Right. Um, but so, uh, you know, that, that, that's really the best I can say. I mean, uh, I, I am lucky uh, that everything went according to the plan that we all thought it would with these minor exceptions that I've mentioned. Okay. Do you want to talk about working with Grant a little bit? Can you give our audience a little history of who that was and why he's so important? Well, I, he was a pioneer. Right. Uh, I mean, we, we both, we had similar backgrounds on different sides of the, uh, uh, of the world. We both went to elite boarding schools. We both had fathers who served, you know, with distinction in World War II. Uh, we grew up in that 50s and 60s uh, yeah, World War II victory parade attitude uh, that you know, prevailed, prevailed across mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, America, yeah, Britain, well, all, all the allied nations, uh, and Australia, of course, particularly uh, for you know, considerable sacrifice uh, of life uh, was made by Australian and New Zealand troops in World right. War II. Uh, for that matter, in World War One, uh, but uh, so we both came, grew up in a culture that that you know, f you know felt pleased with its with its military achievements, um, and uh, but while at the same time, of course, the empire was crumbling because it was unaffordable. Uh, uh, but so, uh, therefore, I think courage and you know. Uh, a man, you know, man's got to do what a man's got to do. You know, that kind of macho mm -hmm. you know, attitude certainly in affected both of us. Um, and, uh, uh, but he, he, yeah, he was someone who wanted to challenge the laws of physics uh, and, and come out on top. Uh, and he worked out ways in which he could do it. He'd learned, got his skills from uh, the, uh, you know, number of years in uh, the commandos of the, what is the equivalent of um, the National Guard, I suppose, in yeah. Australia. I think they were known as the Territorials, but they were part-time soldiers who could be activated in a time of war. And he, he was a frogman. He was, uh, he learned how to abseil and he brought that abseiling skill to uh, my first film, The Stuntmen, um, I, I was told, I said, I need a rope expert, find me a rope, rope expert, and they br brought in Grant Page. And we just hit it off, and I could immediately see that he had, um, he had charisma uh, in person. And he couldn't, could be more than just a double for someone else. Uh, and uh, uh, he, um, he could actually be a character in a film uh, or, or a presenter who actually did his own stunts. Uh, and, you know, when you saw Errol Flynn do the stunts that he did in his movies, like, you know, sliding down, you know, the sail of a galleon, you know, hanging on to, uh, uh, you know, the, the knife he was cutting through the sail, uh, 
the audience didn't necessarily see the uh, the, the the slide rope uh, and uh, right. uh, but you the audience was impressed because they thought wow that's really Errol Flynn doing that that's not a wide shot where someone else is doing it uh, so uh, yeah now of course we have face replacement uh, right. you can you know, make anybody appear to do the most horrendous, you know, acts uh, or, or suffer the most horrendous acts of violence. And, uh, and yet, you know, it's not really them. It's either a, you know, a, a digital avatar with a, with a face re replacement of the actual actor. But anyway, it, it, it's, he, he wanted, I mean, one of the driving forces in, 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 in Grant, I think, was to have mastery over his environment and also to impress his father who returned when, from the war uh, when uh, Grant was, I think, almost seven. Uh, you know, Grant's seven years older than me. Um, and uh, uh, he, he never knew his father, you know, um, because his father went off to war uh, before the baby could really you know, remember him. And then came back when he was, <clears throat> you know, um, yeah, virtually seven. And so I think he wanted to impress his father with his physical skills, uh, mm. as you would want to impress a soldier father. Mm. I similarly wanted to impress my fighter pilot, you know, father who was, you know, shot down over France mm. and went to Stalag Luft three and dug tunnels for the Great Escape, but luckily. Mm out and, um, on that occasion and the, the Warburg wire job he you know survived that and he fell between the two wires and mm -hmm. thousands of rounds of ammunition were being expended in all directions 30 days on bread and water in the cooler was his his reward but um, he you know so there was this kind of background of heroism in our respective families um, that I think we both sought to imitate in our respective ways. That catch that casts such a huge shadow over you. Do you think that's as you're talking about movies? Do you is that one of the ways you think you're trying to get out of your father's shadow? I know it's kind of armchair psychology, but just being impressive, making films. Well, I liked the fantasy world that films offered. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to disappear into that fantasy world. It was more interesting than the real world. And I'd like to create that fantasy world and spend as much of my time as possible in it, either making them or watching them. Which uh, probably makes me a very limited human being. I don't know. No, absolutely not. What, what, where do you think your creativity came from? Was your father creative? What about your mother? My mother. My mother was... Uh, uh, an actress um, wanted to be uh, an actress. Uh, you know, certainly had you know dramatic skills. Uh, she initially was working as an extra. Uh, there were there were four British movie studios uh, close to where she lived in the south of England, and uh, um, she worked as an extra. Uh, and I think uh, she was a stand-in for. Diana Churchill, who was a, uh, a, a member of the, that Churchill family who you know, was quite a successful actress. Mm -hmm. uh, she had little you know, walk-on parts. I, mean, I remember she said, you know, my first part was, uh, uh, your boiled egg, sir. 
Um, that was her line. <laughs> but, uh, but she met my father uh, in 1939, just as she was about to turn to, uh, 21. Um, and, uh, it, you know, they you know, got together and it was sort of love at first sight. And they were married six months later, uh, went on a driving honeymoon through the... Um, um, and uh, um, sorry, are you getting additional audio? from upstairs am i just, no are you just, hearing something i'm so sorry uh, yeah I'm, um just a second uh darling could you uh could you shut the, the bedroom door <laughs> well you know well i actually didn't clear with you before we started how long you had so i really i well, didn't know that's how all right i you know as i said i hate a chat um, <laughs> well, uh, and if it makes you feel any better, my two-year-old must have woke up from his nap. I can hear him, his mother chasing him up. We're in my uh, basement. My uh, basement is, uh, our friends don't actually call it a man cave. It's more of a dork hole because <laughs> uh, there's, if you actually, if I could put the camera here, here's a one sheet of the road warrior right behind you uh, speaking uh, of George Miller earlier. So, uh, yeah. anyway, I apologize for that, but anyway, so I, I think probably from my, my mother's side, uh, I got, you know, I think my, well, I, if I, I got leadership and drive from my father, I got uh, some form of artistry, at least from my mother. She made sure that I was taken to plays at the West End theatres of, uh, of London. Uh, and uh, obviously when I you know, developed a, an interest in, in drama at school and uh, you know, performed in plays there and eventually was asked by the school to make you know, a, an eight millimeter coverage of the year's activities at the school, uh, which has since been lost, sadly. Um, uh, but uh, both my parents encouraged um, my quixotic uh, dream of making movies, which I decided at age 13 after, you know, I'd seen uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which I think I told that in the uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, and you've mentioned it in a few interviews too. I actually, when I was asking, I had to ask the Lazenby question, I knew about it, but we've been trying to ask things that I didn't automatically come up and things that I've read and things that I've listened to before. Um, now, I, I have to ask you, do you have anything before I roll on? I, I, I wanted to ask, and you may be getting toward this, but one thing that I, I, you made Turkey Shoot, which we've already discussed, and I believe after that was BMX Bandits. Yes. And, and I wanted to bring that up because most people talk about it because Nicole Kidman, you, you get credit for uh, putting Nicole Kidman on film before anybody else, I believe. But I, I think that's really interesting because you went from uh, – hmm. You, you you went from Turkey Shoot to BMX Bandits, which is is a family film. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. You, your your career is eclectic, and 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 so that's what I was kind of wondering. As far as BMX Bandits, how did you? I just can't picture going from okay Turkey Shoot to BMX Bandits. Uh, something I can watch with my kids, whereas I'm a little bit hesitant to show them Turkey well, I'm Shoot. I'm curious yet. the financiers of BMX Bandits thinking, oh God, this guy right here, Turkey Shoot. <laughs> This is what well, actually, strangely enough, uh, see, Turkey Shoot was reviled by the critics and, and by the film industry arts elite when it came out. Uh, the producer who d didn't, Tony Ganane, who was no friend of the, the, the snobby arts elite uh, himself, 
almost as a, uh, a provocative uh, gesture entered Turkey Shoot into the Australian Film Industry uh, Annual Awards. Uh, uh, and because, yeah, he felt, look, the Brian May's score is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, John McLean's photography is wonderful. Uh, this is a, a, a quirky, um, yeah, you know, horror splatter film with a strong political you know, subtext. Uh, 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 so, you know, uh, it should be entered. Uh, and of course, there were walkouts and, and people hated it. And, and certain, you know, film, certain pundits could see, wow, I can get some publicity out of slamming this. Um, and they did. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, it was, it was not well received uh, at the time. Uh, and, uh, but to me, I, I'm multi-generic and it's not that I, my career was going to be based upon making horror films. And, and, and it, it, it is an issue, obviously, for people who do start and make a couple of successful horror films. How do yeah. they transition to uh, another genre? Um, but, you know, I get typecast. Yes, typecasting occurs very often in Hollywood, um, in television and film. Uh, producers and network executives want to hire someone who's made exactly uh, the same project before in, yes. in, in some great way. Okay, yeah, uh, you know, we, we, we need a war movie director. Okay, uh, who's done a few, uh, etc. cetera. Um, so uh, I... I mean, it could be that I could have spent the rest of my life making martial arts movies after Man from Hong Kong, but I chose to make uh, another action picture, obviously, and I, I have been typed as the as at, at that time. Oh, oh, he's just he's just the action guy. Uh, I'm I wanted to make this kind of boy's own uh, uh, you know, action comedy called Death Cheaters. Mm. Uh, you can find on the Blue Man from Hong Kong Blu-ray Omnibus Edition. Okay. Uh, other things. Um, uh, and, you know, then I made a, uh, a, a, an industrial film, a fire safety film, uh, Hospitals Don't Burn, somewhat yeah. misleading title. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and that was like, you know, uh, a, a PSA with, with horror movie trimmings. Ah. Ah. Anyway. Well, this so. leads me, this leads me to, you yeah. made... Uh, and I uh, don't mean to show my age too much, but I'm 41. And I, I don't think I knew your other films, but I don't know that I made the connection about the quest. And I know it's been called several different titles. It's frog. What, what was the one? Frog Dreaming. Yeah. Uh, the spirit chaser. Spirit the chaser. No kids. Yes. Yeah. I do lack. Uh, and there is, I'm sure there are a few others as well. <laughs> I was very fortunate to be, uh, I had access because of a satellite dish. We were, I was raised very rural, but I was able to get, and I, my parents never paid for it, uh, HBO illegally. And it was one of those things that played quite a bit when I was a kid. And I have so many fond memories of it. Good. I, if you don't mind talking about it a little bit, you, you've said it's one of your favorites, right? Well, yes, because it, it is not an exploitation picture. No. Uh, it is you know, the American title. The quest was a perfectly, um, it was a valid description. Um, and it's a rites of, rites of passage film. Uh, it also yeah. suggests uh, 
that sometimes there there are explanations for you know unusual events that you know may you know, not be scientific uh, and uh, so it was you know it was a quality subject um, that you know I was you know lucky to get the opportunity to make uh, and because I love all forms of all genres of film and you know obviously Hitchcock was a big uh, uh, influence on me but big Hollywood epics were also and uh, the kind of you know tough-minded Robert Aldrich pictures mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, Anthony Mann's flair for you know uh, you know for you know visualizing westerns um, uh, oh so so many different genres done by you know so many different people and not, and not to mention you know kurosawa and the seven samurai which i which saw. by the way i i i was trying to go back and i didn't get a chance because i'm, I'm a trailers from hell fan and you did more than one kurosawa picture on trailers from hell is yeah, he your favorite I, director did you have you mentioned this before i no you see i Favorite director, people ask me, who's your favorite director? I say, well, I get asked what your favorite movie is a lot, specifically because I do these cons and there'll be four or 500. And I basically, I, I call it, um, it's warming up the crowd, but I always call it fluffing. And I'll get asked these things and come in and tell jokes and whatnot. And they'll ask me my favorite movie. And I don't have a favorite movie. Do you have a favorite director? Because that's, that's tough. No, I, because uh, I... I, I so respect what a director has to do, yeah. uh, having, you know, yeah, uh, run in his moccasins, shall we say, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I think when you say, who's your favorite director? Well, in what genre? Yeah, that's uh, a good point. And, uh, uh, I mean, uh, so I, I think of myself as multi-generic because from the earliest age, I, I watched and studied the films uh, that, that that I went to, and would sometimes would see them again, revisit them again, and you know, in home video or on television. And yeah, you know, I, I remember you know uh, running. You know, I actually had to make some promos for Psycho uh, when I was at Channel Ten in '66. They were just getting ready to put that on 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 television, and in then. And so uh, there was a 16 millimeter print of Psycho and I ran the shower scene back and forward and back and forward to, to study how he achieved that extraordinary effect without actually showing penetration, mm -hmm. uh, which was, would have been a, a, a no-no. And of course, if he shot it in color, well, God, you know, they, they censorship boards all across the world would have been clutching their pearls. Uh, but uh, uh, so anyway, I, 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 I have studied various genres so it's it's it, to me it's horses for courses um you want a suspense thriller uh in well is it noirish uh uh is it extreme uh which way are we going to go here uh you know uh if it's you know a, a war movie uh, uh can it be as authentic as possible when i did the remake of sahara the mm -hmm. humphrey bogart original and play it absolutely straight or with Jim Belushi, by the way, it's an interesting choice. Um, that's not a, a slide or a snide comment. It's just an interesting choice. Well, uh, 
in, as so many, well, in, in, in let's say in, in television films and cable movies, which Those were for Showtime, correct? Showtime. Um, there is no choice. Yeah. You have uh, who they cast, who they feel will bring in an audience. And you, you work with what you've got. I worked later on Long Lost Sun with Craig Sheffer, uh -huh. uh, One Tree Hill, and, and, and yeah, had a long, long career. Um, and uh, uh, he was going to be Sergeant Gunn, but then something went wrong with either the, you know, the availability or the negotiations. And so they thought, okay, well, who's next? And I think Tri uh, TriStar, uh, arranged for Jim Belushi to do two pictures back to back for a very, for a goodly sum. I suspect it was, um, yeah, I think he probably got 500 a piece, uh, but I don't know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, uh, but he would go to Australia, he'd do Sahara first, uh, and be there for, you know, for the, you know, 17 of the 18 days. Uh, he'd then move to another part of Australia and do Race for the Sun with Halle Berry. Okay. Intended as a feature. So probably he, maybe he got more for the feature than he got for the television. Mm -hmm. so that, that, I'm probably not correct about that. But I have a feeling I'm possibly correct about the Sahara salary. Um, but good for him. I think he did a great job. Yeah, it's an interesting choice, you know, it's just not necessarily, and it, Rob, like I, I wasn't throwing shade one way or the other, it's just an interesting choice. It never would have occurred to me if I was going to remake it to say, you know, Jim Belushi. Yeah, now interesting, well, tell me who you, who would have occurred to you as a better choice? I'm an idiot. Choice. I'm the last person you would want to ask. I, I would have to think about it and get back to you. I'll email you. This sure. is about you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, it's all about you. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think Jim did a, a terrific job and he right. conformed his, uh, you know, his jokey personality to yeah. uh, the, the role uh, and uh, took it very seriously. And uh, I commend him for it. And, you know, we, we have, not recently, but we have spoken a number of times since. Uh, and he, he regards it as among his best work. Yeah. Um, do you think... Uh, the quick shooting days so led to television or did you how did you get because you started out on television but you've also done a lot of television post doing a lot of movies in between right so yeah. how did you get back into television well uh, uh, very efficient filmmaker yes uh, but I think you, filmmaking is a privilege and you should you know maximize your opportunities uh, uh, for production value and, and for dramatic impact by, you know, not wasting any time scratching your head about, hmm, how do I, how do I stage this scene? Right. So you should come to a day's shooting knowing exactly how to stage every scene uh, that is scheduled and be sufficiently familiar with the script is if suddenly you have to pull a scene from another day and shoot it then, you can pretty much walk straight into it. Yeah. So uh, these are disciplines that you learn in the land of low budget, which you then apply to, uh, to television. Um, so, uh, you know, the, 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 your, your results will be as good as your preparation to achieve those results. Um, so, 
And after a while, you just develop an instinct about, you know, how to shoot something. I, I mean, I, everywhere I go, uh, I, I see, you know, locations all around yeah. me. And I, I'm, half my mind is saying, hmm, that'd be good if we shot it in the late afternoon from over here. And um, we'd get that raking light, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, I, yeah, uh, as I say, in, in movies and, and you know, every aspect of their production and, and ultimately and, and release um, are continually on my mind. Uh, and uh, so I shoot, you know, I, I post shots I do of the deer that uh, visit me uh, on my Facebook page. I've been looking at them yeah, on your Facebook, absolutely. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that um, that being a director, because we, we've had this conversation with some other people who've worked in films, be it special effects or some... Uh, or directors. It, directors. Yeah. Bill Malone, I don't know if you know William Malone. Yeah, I know, I know him, and he, he did one of the, uh, um, uh, the Others episodes. I've got it down here, because you worked with Toby Hooper, Mick Garris, Tom McLaughlin, they all worked on that. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, but but does that make it harder for you to enjoy films because you do always have that this is the location or this is how I would have done it or well no um uh, if a film you know there's always a portion of my brain that is appreciating the skill with which the film is made uh, and it, the more skillful with which the film, uh, it, it, the more skillful the film is in its presentation of the drama and uh, its ability to bond me, the audience, with the central character and his journey, his overcoming of the obstacles or his failure to do so or whatever. Uh, it, you know, that obviously is absorbing most of my brain, uh, but I can't help but noticing oh yeah i see how they did that uh, yeah but it doesn't detract from um, my enjoyment of the storytelling but as if it is a less successful film uh, or if it's it's really bad um then perhaps more of my brain takes over thinking you know oh my goodness they why did they do that i know that was dumb and now, now I'm ahead of the movie. I know, I know what's going to happen next. And then, and we don't even work in films we do it all the time. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. We're not filmmakers, and we do it all the time. It's just if you ingest enough cliche and tropes pop in, and it just drives you crazy. Yeah, but look, I've I've spent a lot of time with cliches and tropes, and uh, yeah, I, I polish. Always are entertaining. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you give a twist. There's a twist. Yeah. Well, yeah where you can and certainly uh, um, now uh, one of my films that have you have you seen Megiddo no Omega Code 2 I I have it down but I've never seen it can you tell me a little bit about it because I was looking it up when we were going through and I don't that's the one I don't have a ton of notes about and I was reading that it had this huge budget that's the one with Michael York and Michael Bean correct yeah yeah no well it it, 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 it the Trinity Broadcasting funded it. Yeah. They wanted to make a film about the Battle of Armageddon, which for some reason was fought with Gulf War tanks. Um, but uh, uh, <clears throat> it, <coughs> it was a sequel to their successful Omega Code. Um, mm -hmm. And it was kind of like an expanded remake, really. Um, but it has a, a, 
yeah, a, a quiet sense of humor because um, I, I made it in a fairly campy way, which yeah, uh, I think worked very well to bring in some secular audience as well as the Pentecostal audience. So how does one become involved with the Trinity Broadcasting Network? TBN, for your love gift of only $100, you can have this <laughs> lovely coveted TBN prayer cloth. So how does one, <laughs> how does one become associated with that? Because I, I don't, we don't know each other well, sir, but I'm assuming you're not a huge religious person. You may very well be. No, I'm not a huge religious person, but I, I uh, have no problem with people who are. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, I agree. And my my wife is is religious and spiritual, though she is not Christian. Um, she's a Baha'i, um, and uh, and I have a great deal of respect for the Baha'i faith. Okay. Uh, but uh, as you know, I you know I, I I'm fully aware of what Christianity has has done um, uh, throughout its history, as indeed uh, you could point the finger at of every religious stripe. <laughs> I'm so just curious how that happens. I doubt if you'll ever find Baha'i extremists. It's just yeah. a contradiction in terms. Uh, but um, I mean, I think religion is, is a fascinating field to study um, and as to what what motivates people uh, in in, the, in their choices in life. Uh, so uh, the ways I became involved because uh, a, a friend of mine was having lunch with Michael York, who said, I'm going to be doing this sequel and I don't want the director I had before. Have you, do you know any, any good directors? And my friend naturally said, uh, uh, yeah, you should check out Brian Trenchard Smith. He would take care of you. And, uh, uh, his manager saw my reel and said, well, you should meet with him. We met Michael York and I coming from a similar background in England, hit it off. And so I was his choice. And then I had to persuade the Trinity broadcasting people that I would, uh, you know, serve their interests. And in truth, they were not happy with the script. And so uncredited, um, my, I and my writing partner, wrote a whole new draft and I was told, oh, it makes sense now. Uh, and uh, we went away, we went from there and they just kept expanding the budget. Initially uh, it was a, be a 42 day shoot uh, for $12 million. Uh, I think we can't afford 42 days. Could you go down to 38? I said, sure, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, uh, on the last couple of days, they said, why don't we just add a, another day to the battle scene and uh, I'll bring in 200 Pentecostal uh, followers and as volunteers to be, you know, marching troops. And I said, it works for me. Um, and uh, then they chose to considerably enhance the visual effects budget. Uh, so it was about 20 million at the end of the day. Uh, I think they were taken to the cleaners by various visual effects companies, um, and particularly the one that did uh, The Beast uh, at the end. Well, you will judge for yourself. Huh? I've got to watch it now. I, I And it really, I hadn't written a lot of questions down about it simply because I didn't know how you felt about it because I'm familiar being from a rural area also with TVN and and I have, I and you're telling me this story and have you, I'm sure, have you seen Ed Wood? 
Yes. Tim Burton. So I'm thinking about you about to get baptized, <laughs> ready to direct this movie. How much, re- how, how, I mean, did they say, I oh, I said Leprechaun 3 and 4. And he's oh, yeah, I think what I did was immediately show them Britannic. Yeah. Uh, and there was, you know, uh, yeah, as I said, probably rudely to James Cameron when I bumped into him the only time at a DGA screening and, uh, hi, Mr. Cameron, I made Britannic on your catering budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he smiled, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then after a pause, he said, you know, there was some quite good CGI in that. And then he walked on. I was going to say, that's, that's actually a lot of the reviews for Britannic talk about how the CGI is well above its budget. I was reading some other yes, reviews and they say that it's a, you know, the film is beautifully done. So I, I wanted to bring that up. So you've got yeah. It's florid melodrama, you know, eye of the needle on a doomed ship. Yeah. Uh, it was obviously a, a Titanic derivative that is very, very loosely based upon uh, the historical record, though there was a woman who was on all three White Star shipping line vessels when they had their maritime disaster. She was on the, uh, the Olympic, the first one, when it collided with HMS Hawk in Southampton Harbor, punched a hole in the side, red faces all around, no casualties. She was on the Titanic and was plucked from the water. And she was on Britannic and was similarly pr- plucked from the water uh, after having hit her head on the underside of the lifeboat um, and had a fractured skull she did not know about for three weeks. Uh, so the, the, the character uh, um, uh, was based upon a real person, um, uh, uh, but uh, she wasn't exactly a member of the British Secret Service. But that's a minor detail. No, uh, actually, now I'm sitting there going, has anybody made it into a horror movie where she's the one that causes all of this? She's a monster. Well, because now, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, because he's never heard this before. Let us pitch you something. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, there are some wonderful pitches out there of uh, genre <laughs> hybrids. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah horror on the Britannic. Um, well, so I've, you know, I've done, you know, deadly virus on a cruise ship, you know, voyage of terror. Um, and, uh, which I think one executive wanted to call seasick epidemic afloat. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, yes, I I had a similar reaction to yours when I heard that. It's, uh, He's a highly paid executive. Uh, yeah, oh, I don't uh, doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. Um, sorry, we got off track. Um, I missed my calling. Yeah, I go into being so a highly paid executive. What you're telling me is I can't get a story out of you about being baptized to be able to do the Omega Code <laughs> too, is what you're telling me. You could just make make. But I was given a blessing. What'd I was that? given a blessing. Oh, okay. I was given well, a blessing. Well, uh, I'm, I, I swear I'm not. Ma- I'm not trying to make fun of anybody religious listening or watching. No, no, I, I know that, and uh, I mean, sure. I yeah, there's a lot we could say about televangelism, uh, but um, the fact is, the people that I met, the Pentecostals that I met, were all good, decent people who 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 wanted the best for the world. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm quite sure if we had. 
discussions about immigration right now with them, the conversation might be more contentious, but um, the rank and file Pentecostals who were extras uh, were just, you know, normal, decent people who had, you know, obviously some rules for life that they embraced and and, and felt very comfortable with. Um, And uh, on that last night of the battle scene, it was very cold out there in, on you know, Mystery Mason, Mystery Mesa, uh, in, in uh, um, it just you know, it was uh, outside of LA by about an hour, and that's where the battles were staged. Um, and uh, you know, people were huddling around space heaters, and I was just talking to them as we were between sets, and they they said. Uh, uh, well, I, 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 you know, are you a Christian? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I, I was, you know, initially born into the, you know, I went to Anglican schools, Church of England schools, but I'm kind of, kind of lost my faith, frankly, since then. And they said, well, look, we think you're a good man. We're going to give you a blessing. And they crowded around me and, you know, put hands upon me and, uh, you know, basically, you know, said a prayer and, uh, and, and, you know, gave me a blessing. And I, I thought, you know, that was very sweet of them. Yeah. I and mean, they could have just written me off as, you know, you know, corrupt Hollywood guy. Um, but they took me at face value. I took them at face value. Um, and, you know, I, I, I appreciated it. Uh, perhaps as a result, I've had a blessed life ever since making Megiddo and uh, shooting it in, in, in uh, uh, 99, 2000. Yeah. Uh, so. But uh, I think the film has a wry undertone that um, secular audiences you know, appreciate. Uh, and I've seen it with a mixture of both. Uh, and sometimes the Christians laugh just as much at some of the, 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 the wry moments as, as the secular audience. And, and, uh, and finally, when you know, God comes, you know, the, it's like the second coming, everyone cheers, both sides of the audience cheered. Uh, so. Yeah. It, it, so, I mean, it, 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 the, I guess the film gets different reactions from different people. I mean, some devout Christians thought it was a tra- travesty, you know, but uh, to make basically a, uh, an action movie slash, my, you know, slightly ho- horror, you know, romp uh, um, out of such a, you know, a serious subject. Why wasn't a really committed Christian director given this, this opportunity? But I think I made it accessible to uh, people that I think a whole new generation might you know, find it um, entertaining. Uh, it, they may not, yeah, they may not be, uh, it may not be a conversion tool uh, for them, but uh, as a piece of cinema that, you know, it was like a, a like being set a, a, a test. Uh, we want you to write an essay on this subject, but, write it with yeah but i wrote it with my own subtext right absolutely so it leads me to to another question if this is weird what's it like knowing you made the best leprechaun film um uh, i i'm proud of it um like you should be i i think you should be you took something that, and don't get me wrong, we've, we, we love ridiculous movies, but you took something and made it entertaining. Yeah, well, I, I, grew up on, yeah, I grew up on the absurdist humor 
of the Goons show in England. Fellas, yes. uh, familiar. Uh, Remember uh, us really wanting to hear Marty Feldman stories and whatnot. You know. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean that that I mean I have that's my only Marty Feldman story. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I know. But, but I mean, the Goon Show, the absurdist humor of the Goon Show, leading on to the wonderfully absurdist humor of the of the Monty Python troupe. They were, you know, big influences on me. So I've always had a slightly irreverent attitude to institutions of all kinds um, as a result. And when I'm presented with an absurd idea for a movie, um, I, I want to embrace that absurdity uh, and celebrate it. Um, so uh, when you say that I made the best uh, leprechaun movie uh, I naturally agree with you but the question is which is it number three or number four okay number three that is the general consensus I'm the, sorry to be such a cliche <laughs> yeah no, no no please like uh, cliches work they're, they're comfortable it uh, makes the most sense yeah it, no. it makes the most sense yes yeah uh, and uh, I you know I, I they were going to wrap up the franchise with number three and, you know, the budget dropped to a million two, make it in, you know, 14 days in LA and a guerrilla unit without permits uh, for one night in Vegas, uh, providing the exteriors. Uh, and, you know, we'll have a trilogy and it'll go out, you know, they'll always have these three in a, in a package, but um, I decided to make it, a lot funnier than the previous leprechauns. And I thought that would be the best way to serve um, my masters commercially. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it worked and it became the highest selling director video of 1995, shipping, I think, 55,000 units. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, that naturally led to, oh, well, we better make another one. And uh, they wanted to do an Apollo 13 version and I said it's kind of cramped in there you know I'm going to limit your opportunities why not go for the aliens uh, derivative and have the space marines hunting a creature that happens to be a leprechaun and they, they bought that uh, and then I went you know and pushed the envelope in terms of absurd humor even further uh, and my mistake was that I didn't include enough horror yeah. Uh, and that, so it therefore disappointed the fans who still wanted nasty stuff to happen uh, to people, uh, as it did in Leprechaun 3. Um, and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm kind of fond, particularly of the, of the second half of uh, Leprechaun in Space, uh, where really you know the momentum picks up and it's just one absurd things thing after another uh and i got to do things that i always wanted to do like you know you know turning a man into a giant spider and uh, you know who who wouldn't want to do that um, uh, yeah uh, so uh but i'm 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 proud of my input into those areas uh and and the, the films live on every passing patrick Patrick's Day, you know, and, uh, you know, people still watch them. And uh, uh, I think, you know, the fact that number two, number four, rather, isn't as horrific as it w should have been, probably makes it more accessible to younger viewers. There'll be a point in time when you will feel 
you can show your children number four, not a problem, <laughs> as well. Um, and yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, if I had it to, had to do it over again, uh, you know, I, I, I would certainly have made, uh, given, you know, the horror moments more, you know, uh, oomph, I think. Uh, and but, but the, you know, the, 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 homage to the chest burster moment is yeah. you know, my, my proudest con, con, contribution to uh, um, that film because I thought now, okay, now if we're going to homage aliens, we've got to have a chest burster moment. Now, what is the absolute most you know, absurd place that a creature should emerge from his human host? Um, and uh, so it went from there. Uh, and uh, it was great to have, you know, uh, Debbie Dunning, you know, the, the tool time girl from uh, uh, Home Improvement to be, you know, you know nearly the, you know, the, the benefactor of, uh, uh, of the leprechaun's um, uh, new growth. Uh, but, uh, I love how he's dancing uh, around it. <laughs> he's trying to put it so eloquently. <laughs> I mean, I could have done that moment with lots of goo and spurting blood and, mm -hmm. you know, bits of flesh flying. And then I don't think it would, yeah, have been, well, it might have been funny in another way. But uh, it, 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 yeah, I was just on a different tonal plane right. when I was making it. Um, so I, um, we probably need to wrap up. We've kept you almost two hours uh, and I apologize. I didn't know that we would go this long. Uh, before How long I, is your podcast intended to be? I mean, well, do you edit it? it depends uh, because if we're, if it's just the three of us, then we usually comment on different things throughout pop culture because that's exactly what the world needed was three more fat white guys talking about pop culture. <laughs> there wasn't enough in any way, shape or form. We need tons more. <laughs> literally and <figuratively. laughs> um so that we usually about an hour an hour and a half it depends on the interview uh some of them are great some of the people we meet because it's mostly cold calls such as yourself and we appreciate you doing it and some can go two 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 hours usually we try not to keep people past two hours you know we know understand people have lives and are doing us a favor but <clears throat> usually between an hour and two hmm, okay how long do well, you usually do when well, I, again, it's as long as it runs, uh, either when, you know, the hosts are completely exhausted and they've run out of questions uh, and really want to go to bed, uh, yeah. and maybe it's time to stop. Um, <laughs> but no, we should probably, you know, stop and we can always leave things for another we time. Could, and, and we want you to come back, especially when you let us know about this new project, but I have a question and James has uh, a question. Uh, real, actually, go. I just wanted to make a comment. I, uh, hearing you talk about writing your memoirs, I want to say as somebody that loves film and loves how things got made, thank you for doing that. I'm, I'm my professorship, I do educational history. So I'm an educational historian, not a lot of demand for us, but yeah, that's the response my students normally give me. But I just want to say one of the things that I always talk to students about is we cherish popular culture. We talk about it a lot, but we don't talk about how it got made. And, and why that's so important and who made it and things like that. So I just wanted to say, I, I can't wait for your memoirs to come out. Good luck with the editing. I know that's a challenge, but yeah. I, I'm excited. No, it, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to make it as interesting 
it's not it's not a scandal. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly am critical of certain people and certain uh, aspects of the business, but it's 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 not a sort of celebrity scandal kind of thing. Uh, I really only want to say the best about people that I've worked with, um, and and thank a lot of people that uh, that you know, gave me opportunities. Um, but yeah, you know, hopefully it will give an insight into the what makes a director tick, and and you know my love of you know as as all directors should have a a love of cinema history a love of the history of the technological uh, progress uh, that recorded entertainment made over the last hundred years um, and uh, uh, so you know all, all of that is is you know I think worth doing I mean that, and we'll see how people r respond to uh, to the book uh, this book. Is my you know right. as uh, you know uh, Alice through the multiverse mm -hmm. is available on Amazon and and Kindle and it is uh, basically a uh, a time twisting paranormal thriller with a a wry undertone as you would expect from my films uh, but you know comments you know on you know certain you know it, it it compares and contrasts uh certain moral social and political issues uh as they uh, were conducted in the 16th century and present day um and uh, uh so that's you know that's part of it really it's a ripping yarn with a strong female protagonist uh who somehow manages to overcome all the obstacles ah you know, my wife is just coming down to, uh, anyway, closing doors. Good. Um, <laughs> How are you uh, doing? <laughs> Tell her we said yeah. hi. We're just strange men. Yes. <laughs> strange men. I won't turn the camera. My lovely wife is in a towel, um, yes. <laughs> which, yeah, uh, which is, yeah, is, is wonderful. Um, but, uh, so I mean, uh, it ha the, the the book has political subtext and has a strong environmental message, and uh, I'm saying things that probably will discourage readers. But it, it's actually uh, yeah a, a fun series of uh, cliffhangers and page turners. Uh, so uh, I hope that those who like my films uh, will see that this is in fact a, a movie in prose. Uh, it did actually start life as a screenplay that. Yeah, nearly. Yeah, it 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 attracted some attention, but we could never get the the female star that was big enough to float the boat. We couldn't get Kira Knight, couldn't get Scarlett Johansson. This was yeah, well over ten years ago, um, and uh, uh, so you know it, it ultimately the rights uh, you know the option lapsed. So I decided after many years to novelize it and. Uh, uh, and maybe it could now become a a, a series on a, a streaming platform. Um, so I'm pursuing those those options. Uh, but anyway, I if if people can just give up having a five dollar cup of coffee one day and go to Kindle and uh, get a three dollar and forty nine cent you know, version, um, uh, then I think they will have a good time. I, one of my friends, uh, uh, he would read it every night. Uh, he'd, he'd read it a, 
you know, a, a, from cliffhanger to cliffhanger, and then he'd go straight to sleep. And then the next night he'd read on and that, that's how, you know, but I wouldn't want people to think it's a book that can send you to sleep. Some people just read it completely over a weekend and couldn't put it down. So anyway, it's available so on I'll be interested. I'm assuming it's also available on paperback, correct? Oh yes. Yeah. This uh, is so the for paper. those of us that have to, I, 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 we're, you were talking about being, we're very tend. I, I like tactile contact with yes. my books. So I don't even, well, handle, I, I like holding a book. Yes. I, I prefer it. I, 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 I read online. I have to read too much online because I do a lot of research for trailers from hell and, and, yeah. for my own, and, and for my novel. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, uh, I have to sort of, uh, 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 yeah, I, but I, I certainly prefer the uh, you know, the feel of a good book in the hand. Um, so anyway, hopefully some of your readers uh, or your listeners. Yeah, no, no, we will. We'll, we'll, we're, uh, we'll actually buy a, a copy for ourselves. You know, there's so many questions I wish we could have gotten to. Uh, that I feel like this is a good place to stop it, uh, pushing the yeah. book. I wanted to talk to you more about Trailers from Hell, how you got into that. Uh, maybe some other time we can do that. Uh, one last question. Go ahead. Well, I was uh, Elizabeth Stanley and Joe Dante called me up one day uh, after Not Quite Hollywood came out. Yeah, about the auscultation. Ah, yes. Yeah. So for our listeners, and contributing to our site, and we we now we we now know that you you used to make trailers just like Joe did, uh, and uh, so hey, come aboard, and so I did, and you know, over eighty later. And I've been a bit slow recently because of um, the memoirs, which are consuming, you know, my time. Um, yeah. So I hope to get back to it. Anyway, well, good. It's been very nice to talk to you. you I well, assume. Sir. Yeah. And, and when the, the broadcast ends, um, I'll just have just, just one more thing that I will tell you about. Absolutely. I'm going to stop recording now. So thank you so much. This has been Brian Trenchard-Smith. I am Joe Lewis. James Thomas. Thank you so much for listening and watching Bonehead. Uh-huh.